Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. We are, like we do each year this December, we are doing a series of Christmas in the Psalms. Last time we looked at Psalm 2, uh, one of the, the initial Psalms in the, the 150 Psalms of the book we call the Psalter, uh, that as we saw is a, was a kind of enthronement song that was sung uh, as kings in the line of David were enthroned as king. But ultimately it pointed forward to, to Jesus, the one who is both son of David in the line of David, but is in fact God's son, which is what made Gabriel's pronouncement to Mary so significant that he would be called the, the son of the most high and to him would be given the throne of his father, David. Son of David, yes, but son of God. And so the Christ is God's king. But this morning, as we come to perhaps one of my favorite psalms in all the Psalter, we see that this king is in fact glorious, beautiful, and excellent. And this beautiful king has come to seek you and me so that we might be beautiful in his sight. It's, this is a glorious psalm, but in order to hear all that God has for us this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come desiring this morning to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take Holy Scripture and use it in our hearts and lives. Indeed, we ask that you would open our eyes to see glorious things in this portion of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the peoples. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. 
I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 1986, uh, Peter Cetera had just left the supergroup Chicago to launch his solo career. And his first single was likely the only memorable thing from the sequel, Karate Kid 2. Uh, The song played over the end credits uh, as they rolled. And the song, which actually made the top 10 of the Billboard hits, was the song, The Glory of Love. Now, now you undoubtedly, if you have a certain generation already that is playing in your head, I warn you, it is an earworm. You cannot get it out of your head. It has been in my head all week. Um, but, but Glory of Love was, was like most of Peter Cetera's songs. It was, it was wonderfully sentimental, uh, but also a, a powerful picture of romantic love. And the chorus memorably went, I am the man who will fight for your honor. I'll be the hero that you're dreaming of. We'll live forever knowing together that we did it all for the glory of love. Oh, swoon. I mean, what, what, what woman wouldn't want a man like that? One who would fight for your honor. One who would be a hero. One with whom you would live forever knowing the glory of a forever love. And, and, and who wouldn't want to be a man like this? To, to aspire to be this kind of lover and to, to love in this kind of way. Of course we want this. Of course we want to be like this. And I'm sure that Peter Cetera did too. He wrote this song with his then wife, Diane Nini, from whom he divorced in 1991. And that's the thing, isn't it? We long for real love, love that will last. We long for those who would fight to protect us, who would be our heroes. We long for love, that the glory of love, and and all too often our experience falls far short of our longings. We give ourselves over to boyfriends or girlfriends, to husbands or wives, and they profoundly disappoint our expectations, or even worse, as far too many of us have experienced, we know abuse, abandonment, far from having a defender or a hero, Far from being cherished or beautiful because of another's love, we swirl in dysfunction and drama and destruction. And so our response to this kind of longing for for true love is is twofold. On the one hand, we're utterly cynical about the possibility of the glory of lasting love. But on the other hand, we desperately are looking for it. Desperately longing for a defender, a hero, one who would love us unreservedly, one who would love us forever. Now listen, what this text tells you, Psalm 45, is that your longing is not unreasonable. In fact, this longing for love and, and for the glory of such love, it's actually hardwired into us. It can only be met, though, in someone who's not only human, but divine, someone who's a true hero, a true defender. In other words, whether you're someone who's longing to be cherished or you are someone who recognizes how far you fall 
from, from short from being heroic. There's hope today. Because Christmas centers on the coming of a glorious king, the son of David, who is actually the son of God. And he came to love you gloriously. He came to love you. That's what this psalm is all about. Actually, the, the title, which we didn't read, uh, most scholars don't think that the titles in the psalms are actually inspired. The, the title tells you this is a love song. It's a wedding song, but it's also a royal song. It's about a king and his queen. And when you bring these together, you realize that this song was written in celebration of the marriage of a king in the line of David to his bride. And unusually for the, the Psalms in the book we call the Psalter, that the writer inserts himself in the first verse to explain what he's doing to tell us that this, this love song actually introduces a, a pleasant theme. This love song is, is something that's meant to be beautiful, is meant to, to cause our hearts to long and find their longings met in the glory of Christ. Now remember that word Christ? We talked a little bit about it last week. Christ is actually the Greek word for anointed one. The, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. And so all of the kings in David's line, with these kings who were anointed with oil, were actually anointed ones. They were messiahs or Christ. In fact, there's a reference to this anointing in verse 7 of this psalm. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And the reason why I want to point that out here at the beginning is is as we think about this psalm and how it points to the glory of Christ, our minds naturally run to Jesus. And of course, that's exactly right, as I'm going to argue all the way through. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But when we talk about Jesus Christ or Christ the Lord, we aren't using a last name. Jesus' last name is not Christ. Jesus' title is is Messiah. And that title, Christ or Messiah, it only makes sense in the context of an Old Testament reality in which the kings in the line of David are anointed with this oil that makes them Messiahs, that makes them Christ. And it only makes sense to see how, when, how their failure as kings, as anointed ones, as Christ, causes us to long for, for a perfect king, a perfect Christ. One who, who's described here as remarkable, as, as desirable because of his beauty. I mean, that's what the singer says. My, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. This king about whom the singer sings is handsome. He's excellent. He's beautiful. And it's seen in his gracious speech. Grace, the psalmist says in verse 2, is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. His beauty is seen in his majestic stance as he stands there in full regalia, strapping on his sword. Verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. 
And his beauty is seen as he stands in the midst of this grand scene that's described in verses 7 to 9. As he's anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 8, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. It's the closest thing that we have to describing this scene with this majestic, handsome, excellent, beautiful king. Are those period dramas that the BBC produces from the as you have these kings and queens of England in the 17th and 18th centuries, and they're dancing about in such finery and such beauty and such excellence. That's what's described here. The king's robes are fragrant. The royal room is opulent. The musicians, excellent. The guests, well-placed. And the picture we have of this king is one that everyone would allow. He's beautiful. He's beautiful utterly handsome. He is the picture of a hero. Everyone would want this king to be their king. Everyone would want to be with this king. But his beauty is matched by his power. Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So this king, this hero, he, he's, a, he's a defender par excellence. He rides forth with his army in majesty and splendor, but especially he rides forth to victory. In fact, his right hand, his right arm performs mighty deeds. He shoots his arrows and they stick in the hearts of kings. He wields his sword and slaughters the people before him. The nations, the peoples, they bow down, they submit to him. Here, what you have with this king is described as real power. Here is a defender who will not only fight for your honor, but will win and gain glory. Our minds struggle to really connect or, or figure out what what does this actually look like to see such beauty such masculine beauty and such power matched together in one person we look out in our contemporary culture and we try to to find examples and and we can think of them uh, the now retired pro quarterback tom brady who who's who pained me repeatedly as a peyton manning fan but but tom brady who's utterly handsome as a fashion model, and yet was the most successful NFL quarterback in history. Surely Tom Brady's right arm had done mighty deeds. Or the actor, Tom Cruise, who's undeniably, obviously handsome, tabloid-worthy wherever he goes. And when he acts as Ethan Hunt for the Mission Impossible movies, he, he grosses billions of dollars worldwide. Surely that's real power. Or the musician, Tim McGraw, who's, who's utterly ripped and muscular and performs in ripped t-shirts so that women can, can gawk and swoon as he performs. And his powerful arms move as he sings and he goes from one mega hit to the next mega hit to the next. That's the picture here. Except unlike our contemporary heroes, the glory of this Christ, the glory of this Messiah, this King, 
who marries together such beauty and such power, it centers on his character. Centers on his character. And most obviously, his character is, is good. I mean, when he rides forth for war, he doesn't pursue his enemies for, for money or power. He doesn't pursue his enemies out of, out of passion or, or prominence. Rather, he, he goes out in the cause of, of truth and meekness, humility and righteousness in the cause of justice. His, his words are words of, of truth, the psalmist tells us. Not, not just a accuracy in what he says, but in reliability. You can depend on what this king says. You can take it to the bank. All of his promises are yes and amen. They... This king doesn't need to swear by heaven or earth. No, his word is reliable. His words are true. His is the way of humility. This king recognizes he has great power, but he doesn't have to grasp his power. He doesn't have to grasp his glory. He can willingly let it go. Willingly take upon himself the, the form of a servant, if need be, in order to accomplish his purpose. He doesn't view his power and glory, his beauty as something to cling to. His is the work of justice and righteousness. All that he does meets God's perfect standard of equity. All that he does demonstrates his care for the poor and the vulnerable, the quartet of, the, of those who suffer, to give them their due, to care for the weak and the wounded, the helpless and the hurt. That's what this king does out of justice. The glory of this king, my friends, it's not only that he's handsome, beautiful, not only that he's powerful, but it's also that his character is good, but, but more than good. Now, the psalmist tells us that his character is such that he's, that he's God. In verse 6, you see it. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Now on the surface, this reflects 2 Samuel 7. It's a, a recognition that from that, that set of promises that God made to David, that God had established a forever kingdom for David. That, that David's throne would go on forever and ever because God's throne rules by uprightness and righteousness. But, but not only is there a forever throne, the end of the psalm speaks of forever praise, right? Verse 17, I will cause your name, the psalmist says, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So you have a throne that will be established forever and ever. And you have praise that will go on forever and ever. But I ask you this morning, how do you have a forever kingdom with forever praise without a forever king? Here's the answer. You can't. You can't. Which is why the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 take these verses and apply them directly to Jesus. And in doing that, God, the Holy Spirit tells us this truth. This psalm isn't about the kings of David. Isn't about the kings that start with Solomon and then through Rehoboam 
are raised up in generation after generation, ending in the line of Zedekiah. This isn't about them. It isn't telling us that they are beautiful and they are powerful and they are good. No, this psalm is telling us about Jesus the Christ. It's telling us about Jesus' glory, his beauty, Jesus' power, and his character. And that means, my friend, that Jesus is the man who will fight for your honor. Jesus will be your defender. Jesus is the hero that you're dreaming of. And when he was born, and when the angels sang, and the shepherds stood amazed, it was the coming of the king, yes. But the king wasn't coming for subjects to rule. You know that, right? Jesus isn't like any politician you know. Isn't like any king that's ever existed on the face of the planet. He wasn't coming for subjects to rule. Jesus the king was coming for a bride. He was coming for a bride. You see, the the glory of every bride is that she is sought for. And it's no different for you and me. Jesus, the glorious Christ, the king, came looking for us to be his bride. He has set his desire upon you. That's what the songwriter says here. That's what he says to the bride. Did you see it in verse 10? Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. The NIV has this as, listen, daughter, pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled with your beauty. Friends, he's come to look for you. He's come to seek you. He's come to win you and woo you. He came because he loved you before the foundation of the world. Before time was, God in Jesus Christ loved you. And when did he come? Yes, it began at Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And why did he come? The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. But don't miss it. From heaven, he came to seek you to be his holy bride, as the hymn has it. And he did so because he thinks you are beautiful. You're beautiful to him. Some of you have gone days, weeks, months, maybe it's been even years, and you haven't heard anyone tell you that you're beautiful. But you are. I mean, let's, let's be real. Some of you are actually giving yourself away emotionally and sexually because you deeply desire someone who will, who will want you, who will seek you, who will say, you are beautiful. You are strong. You are so handsome. I love you. And you want this even though you know deep down there's parts of you that aren't beautiful, that aren't handsome, that aren't strong, that aren't heroic. But but here's the thing. Jesus has come seeking you to love you, to be enthralled by you, and for you to be enthralled by him. 
That's what the song is teaching us. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because it's the glory of the king, the glory of, of Christ to make his bride splendid and splendid with his own robes. Look at verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she's led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. Now, whose robes are these? Where did she get these robes? She didn't go to Dillard's or Macy's. Where did she get these blood thread, gold thread, interwoven robes that are so glorious and create such joy? She got them from the king. And when Jesus the king looks at you, what does he see? The king sees you dressed in his beautiful robes of righteousness, interwoven with these blood-stained and pure gold threads. And he sees you coming before him with joy and gladness and laughter that reflects his own joy and laughter and gladness in you. And he sees in his mind's eye all that was done all that had to be done in order for you to wear those robes, in order for you to know joy in your king, how he came to this far country, how he was born in a, in a cradle uh, that, was a, that wasn't a bed, but in fact was a, a manger scene, how he lived in obscurity for 30 years, submissive to his parents, learning suffering through all of that, in order to speak words of truth, beautiful words, wonderful words. Never a man spake like this man, they said of him. And he willingly embraced the way of humility. He could have come as a king and demanded everyone bow the knee. But he didn't grasp glory, didn't grasp his power, took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself even to the point of death. And by bearing the work of righteousness and justice, nailed to a cross for you and for me. And why did he do all of that? Why did Jesus come? Why did he do all of this? He did this, my friends, so that Jesus could say to you, I am the man who fought for your honor. I am the hero that you're dreaming of. We'll live forever, knowing together that I did it for the glory of my love for you. Don't you see? He came for you. For you. He, he came for you. Because he loves you. And he desires to be enthralled by you. Even as you're enthralled by him, wearing the robes that he bought at such a high cost. My friends, don't you have room in your heart for him? For this Jesus who loves you in this way, for this beautiful, glorious, excellent king? Don't you have room for him? His coming in love to love you, that's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, some of us desperately needed to hear you speak through my voice and tell them that they are beautiful to you. Maybe words end of this service, your, your name is placed upon your people in such a way that they get to hear you smile upon them. 
Your face shines when you think of them with delight and joy. Lord Jesus, it's so hard for us to believe because we know our own hearts, and yet you are the one who is doing your work in us. And so, Lord, come to our hearts, Lord Jesus. There's room in our hearts for you. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.